You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Padma Lakshmi has had a fascinating career, model, TV show host, and author. Today we discuss her childhood and her latest TV series, Taste the Nation. She also answers the question, can you have it all? Uh, You can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. I mean, I often don't have time for an adult personal life. You know, I have to be mindful and say, okay, when was the last time I just went to have a glass of wine with my friends or went to dinner, not for an event or for work or for a parent-teacher thing, but actually for something that was purely for pleasure. Also coming up, we present a new take on the cheeseburger by introducing Creamy Telegio. And later, Bianca Bosker takes us through the history and evolution of wine reviews. But first, David Leibovitz discusses how to drink like the French. David, welcome back to Milk Street. Uh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So your latest book is about drinking French, and it covers, among other things, l'apéritif. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French have a very different meaning associated with that word. What is aperitif? It's not just a cocktail. Well, aperitif, it's the time of day between when you're done working and when you're going to have dinner. It's kind of a transition time. You know, the word comes from the Latin, you know, to open up. And it's sort of meant to open up your appetite for dinner. But in France, also, people eat late. The alcohol, though, these cocktails, the aperitif, mm-hmm. are not supposed to be like a sturdy American cocktail with no. two or three ounces of alcohol. So just describe what they're for and what they're like. Well, a lot of the aperitifs that we that we associate with France, such as Dubonnet, Lillet, they originally were health tonics. They had quinine in them, which um, one one distiller told me, he goes, it was, that was the CBD of the 1890s, was quinine. <laughs> Everybody wanted quinine. They used to have much higher alcohol content, and then they lowered the alcohol down so they were more drinkable. Um, you put ice cubes in them and so forth. And I think some of that might have been modeled after pastis. When that became popular, everyone was sort of leisurely drinking this drink and adding water to this glass over the course of several hours. You talk about cafes a lot, and you say, I often refer to cafes as the living rooms of Paris. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone's welcome to gather there, whether you spent the night sweeping the streets or working the streets. Uh, How does that play into this whole story about drinking and aperitifs? Well, people, it's hard to underestimate the importance of a French cafe to a French person. You know, I was I was in Italy a few years ago, and I was like, where are all the cafes? And there are cafes, but it's not like Paris, where there's like five on every block, there's one on every corner. Um, French people are so into being convivial with their friends, meeting their friends, and they use cafes not just somewhere to get a drink, but it's really somewhere to spend time. It's sort of like your home away from home. Well, we've spoken about this before, but you talk a lot about the French are really good at doing nothing in particular, right. but really enjoying the moment. And and that plays into your whole book, Drinking French, yes, right? Yes, yes. 
I, yeah, I'm somebody that always has to be doing something. And I really had to dial down my, you know, my own expectations of, of my ability to just, you know, turn off and just sit somewhere and be, or être, and as you say in French, the verb to be. And I've remember, you know, it's taken me a couple of years, actually. I mean, I can do it. I can go to a cafe and do nothing, but it's hard. You know, I usually have to bring a book with me or I sometimes I bring my laptop. Um, but the French are very, you go to cafes and someone's just sitting there for like three hours hmm. and they're thinking about stuff, which is something that I aspire to. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about specific drinks. You write... I marveled at the barrels of wine left in the open Mediterranean air to intentionally oxidize before it became vermouth. I didn't know vermouth is oxidized wine. I, I thought it was wine or alcohol flavored with herbs and some other things. You know, all these things were same to me. They were all, a lot of discoveries. You know, I always thought, like, I know vermouth. It's a, it's a wine, you know, fortified, aromatized wine with herbs and spices in it. And then I went I went down to Marseillan where Noily Pratt vermouth is made and they had, you know, a thousand barrels outside. And they said, yes, that's the flavor of our vermouth. You know, the wine used to come from Spain on boats, and it got oxidized, and we want to keep that going. Hmm. So uh, learning about what makes all these things different and interesting, such as oxidizing wine intentionally for a year in the open air to give it a little saltiness and, you know, age. Well, I'm certainly at a point in my life where I think a little saltiness in age is probably yeah. a pretty, pretty good thing. I'm all for that. Uh, yes, I'm making my living being salty and aged at this point. <laughs> you and me both. Um, you also mentioned a drink which you like called the Long Hello. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about that? Because that really appealed to me. Well, I love the name. Um, that was invented by a barman called uh, Damien Bolt, who has a bar, really great bar in Brooklyn called Grand Army. And he came up with this cocktail, which has calvados in it, apple brandy from Normandy, and then uh, elderflower liqueur. And then you top the glass off with champagne and a little nutmeg. Hmm. And what's interesting about the French is they often say, oh, you should never defile wine or champagne. Like, do not put ice in it. Do not. You know, there's all these rules. And then there's all these drinks, like the Kier Royale, um, the bicyclette. <laughs> That use champagne as a base, you know, and they, you add stuff to it. It's interesting because years ago, I'd, I went to a champagne dinner with the owner of the most prestigious champagne house. And he said to me, you're better off putting an ice cube in a glass of champagne than drinking a warm glass of champagne. So what's the difference between entertaining in France versus entertaining uh, here in the States? Okay, well, uh, I actually read an article once for expats about how to get used to going to a French party because Americans are usually boisterous and lively and are moving around and meeting people and having fun, um, whereas the French are more into discussions. <laughs> so it's a different sort of atmosphere. I, I often joke, like, I've never been to an American dinner party where English grammar has come up as a point of discussion and debate. And I think every French dinner party I've been to, someone has brought up something about the French language. People like say, oh, you know, you use the past participle of et and it should be the imperfect. <laughs> but my partner's French and he told me, he goes, you need to smile more. Uh oh, <laughs> everyone always tells you like, don't smile in Paris because they'll, they'll know you're American. I was like, I'm trying to look more French. And he's like, you need to smile more. 
David Leibovitz has outdone the French. Yeah. I like that. Uh, David, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for uh, coming back to Milk Street. Yes, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And next time I see you, I think we should have a cocktail. Or an aperitif. Yes. (laughs) Thanks, David. Bye-bye, Chris. That was David Leibovitz. His new book is called Drinking French, the iconic cocktails, aperitifs, and cafe traditions of France with 160 recipes. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering your toughest culinary questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Judy McClintock from Arden, Delaware. Hi, Judy. How can we help you today? Well... It's about beans, and I know that a lot of people bring up beans often, so I hope you aren't too bored with this subject. But I was making beans for years and doing the soak, the overnight soak, and then dumping the water, which I always thought was part of it. And the reason I thought I was doing all this was to mitigate the rather socially unacceptable... Flatulence. Oh, yeah, okay. There you go. Flashlance <laughs> that comes along with it. And it seemed to work, you know, pretty well. Then somebody gave me a vegetarian cookbook of Mexican food. And in their recipe for pot beans, they said to just throw the dry beans into a pot with epazote and other things, onions and so on. And when I made the beans that way, because I thought, well, it doesn't say to soak. It doesn't say anything about it. I found out there was no flatulence. And I've tried this out on other friends, and it absolutely works. And I was just wondering if you guys ever used it or knew about it. I was actually in Mexico City this year earlier, and um, we cooked pot beans with a guy called Eduardo Garcia, who has a restaurant in Mexico City. And he did soak his beans, though, for 24 hours first. Okay. Then he cooked them in plenty of water for two and a half hours. And they were fairly fresh beans. They were a few months old. I don't know why it took that long to cook them, but it did. He used epizote as well. So I I think epizote is just a go-to addition to beans, and I've heard that that's true. It helps with digestion. I think the soaking is always a good idea because the beans end up creamier and more evenly cooked especially with the beans you get in the supermarket around here mm-hmm. in the States. In Mexico, you're probably getting fresher beans and a totally different variety. So soaking for at least overnight is critical for that. Okay. And I will also put a little salt in the water too because adding that salt just helps to flavor them as well. The salt will not make them tough because that's no, what No, that's okay. no. That's a tale. That's a misnomer. No. Okay. Yeah. No. But the episode is something they... It's common. Okay. Well, um, I did find that it seems to work, but maybe I should also go back to the soaking just to make sure. (laughs) Well, I I don't think the soaking affects the flatulence. I think the soaking makes them cook more evenly. I agree with Chris. Uh, But maybe the episode helps the flatulence, so why not? I yeah. think we should undertake a national flatulence survey using <laughs> epizote in the control and then not using epizote in the other group, group A and B. We'll see. We'll have to just survey okay. people afterwards right. to see. But I, I think you're right. I think epizote is uh, is a good thing if you can get yeah. it uh, to add to beans. So thank you, Judy. Okay. Yes, thank you. Thank you so Take much. Care. Take care. Bye-bye.
Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Rob Sapp. How are you, and where are you calling from? I'm calling. I live here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. How can we help you? I was recently going through the Spice Kitchen online class with Milk Street, mm-hmm. and on the lesson for blooming spices, he mentioned to put cold oil in a pan. I had always been taught or thought the hard fast rule was always cold oil in a hot pan. How do you know or what's the reason? When do you determine when you would right. put cold oil in a hot pan and cold oil in a cold pan? It's a great question. Uh, first of all, you would never put cold oil in a hot pan. You always put cold oil in a cold pan. Then you have two choices. You can heat up the oil until it gets really hot just before it starts to smoke and then add the food. And that would be if you're sautéing meats, for example, other things. The other choice is to put cold oil in a cold pan and then put the food in right away. Onions, for example, or garlic, I'd like to start cold and cook them gently. So if you want to get good browning quickly, you don't want the food like a steak to just sit in a cold pan. You'd heat up the pan, and the oil's a great way to determine when the pan is right for sautéing because it'll start to shimmer. You see a few wisps of smoke. So it's a good way of determining the temperature of the pan. That's why we do it that way. I actually agree with Chris. You know, the problem with garlic, if you start it in a hot pan, it browns too quickly. Right. So, and then it gets bitter. Whereas if you start it in a cold pan, it's almost like you're sucking the flavor out of it, more flavor out of it. Chris, but did you want to address the spice issue? Yeah, I mean, you know, for example, if you have whole spices or even chili flakes, you would put that into not super hot oil, but warm oil Mm -hmm. for a couple of minutes, and then you would infuse the oil with the spice. Or if you're starting a curry or something else, you'd put whole spices in oil. And I'd always start with cold oil Mm -hmm. and then warm it up. Again, it's to extract the flavor. Occasionally, you could fry whole spices, fry them in super hot oil. I guess you could do that too. It just depends on the recipe. But again, the garlic is so temperamental and it can burn and ruin so quickly. Why do we want to throw the garlic in so early instead of maybe later in the dish? We don't. Uh, The garlic usually goes in after the onions or what else is cooked. I think two quick things before we go. One is crushed garlic cloves, in my experience, is a much better way to go because Mm -hmm. they're not going to burn You don't have to mince the garlic to start with. So in almost all cases, that's what I use. Secondly, you should think about something I discovered in Mexico a year ago, making a sofrito and adding it towards the end of the dish. We were cooking beans, and the chef put in the sofrito at the end. And I said, why would you do that? They said, well, if you cook the sofrito in a super stew for two hours, you're going to lose all the fresh flavors. So next time you do something like that, think about it like a braise. Make a sofrito, onions, peppers, chilies, whatever you use. And then add it near the end of cooking to keep that fresh flavor. It's a really great technique. So, yeah, it just makes so much more sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I was nice like one idea. of those moments I go like, why well, have been doing this the wrong way all these years? So yep. anyway, thanks for calling thanks, and uh, try that. Yeah. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question, please give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at Milk Street Radio. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Kimberly. Hi, Kimberly. Where are you calling from? Philly. How can we help you? 
whenever I make mac and cheese, which is a basic recipe, for whatever reason, mine always comes out gritty or like the cheese breaks. And I've tried everything, like taking it off the heat, different kinds of cheeses. Can't seem to do it. Let's start with the recipe. You start with a basic bechamel cream sauce. Yeah. You make a roux, flour, butter, and then you add heated milk to it. Right. And then you simmer it for a bit, right, till it reaches its full thickening capacity. Right. So it's basically like the thickness of what, like condensed soup. Right. Okay. So then you take it off the heat and you add your grated cheese. What kind of grated cheese do you add? So I like to mix, you know, your cheddar Monterey Jack because it melts really well, from what I'm told. (laughs) Yes. Um, No, no. This is true. Sometimes for holidays, whatever, I'd like Gruyere. You grate it yourself. You don't buy the pre-grated. No. Okay. And you coarsely grate it and you add it in and you stir it off heat till it melts. And then what happens? I put in the macaroni and then when I go to taste it, it tastes gritty. Are these cheeses like the cheddar? Is this an aged cheddar? It's basically cabot, like the block. Some cabot is, you know, relatively young and they also have longer age. Is this like the cloth block, which is fairly aged? Yeah, no, this is your run-of-the-mill in the plastic shrink wrap. (laughs) Oh, okay. Are they dry? Like if you cut a piece off, or is it very soft? They're soft, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, wait a second. We're missing half of the equation here. Talk about the pasta. I usually use a brand called Luigi or just the elbow macaroni. Mm -hmm. And how do you cook it? I usually cook it for about seven minutes. In plenty of boiling salted water? I usually don't measure it. (laughs) Maybe I'm not using enough water. Well, pasta's starchy. The more starch the water, the better. What's happening usually if cheese starts to clump is the protein is separated with fat. And then if the protein gets together and starts clumping together, you get that grittiness. So starch is good. The less water you use to cook the pasta, the better. Oh, okay. Did you ever do this with just Monterey Jack and not the other two? No. I just wonder if one of the other cheeses, maybe the Gruyere, but I would think probably the cheddar if it's, but you said it's creamy and soft. I would just try all Monterey Jack as a test. Then I would add one of the other cheeses in, then try it with just the other cheese and see if one of the cheeses is a problem. Yeah, I think you're going to have to do a control here. I think Chris's suggestion is a good one. And my guess would be the culprit is, although my favorite cheese really, is the cheddar. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with your cooking method. It sounds fine. Yeah, it does. That's a good idea. I'm going to try that. Thank you. All right. Give that a shot. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kimberly. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from author and Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi about her new TV show, Taste the Nation. That and more in just a moment. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Padma Lakshmi, who's hosted Top Chef since 2006. Her latest TV show, Taste the Nation, is a 10-episode series on Hulu where Lakshmi travels around the country to discover the breadth of American cuisine. Padma, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. Um, before we get to your new series, Taste, I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. 
Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. The Nation. I thought we'd go back to the very beginning just to get a better sense of, of you. Um, you said your parents divorced when you were two and your mother came to the United States. Was being divorced then uh, in India and your part of India very difficult for a woman in terms of career? It was difficult for a woman, period, not just her career. It was just, you know, you had this invisible scarlet letter on your chest, especially we are from South India and South India tends to be a little bit more conservative than say, you know, cities like Delhi. Um, So it would have been very hard for my mother being a single parent, but also just being able to work and not being harassed. And, you know, it was very, very taboo. It just wasn't done. So you end up in California and you said in high school, you you sort of changed your name Mm -hmm. uh, and you say because you've been bullied for your name, your Indian name and heritage. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to fit in. I think, you know, I don't I don't think it was specifically my name. I think it was everything and my name kind of symbolized that. You know, I I think people didn't right. know what to make of me or or kids and and you do have enormous amount of diversity in California, but they don't often completely intermingle. At least they didn't at my high school. So then you end up in Spain, which was very different. You get discovered, yes. you become a model. You said, all I understood was that in Spain, I was a woman, beautiful and confident. But back home, I was a young girl again, uneasy with herself. So you found something in Spain you, you did not find in the United States. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, when I was in Madrid, everybody was Spanish and fair-skinned, mostly. And so I, in a way, stuck out. But I felt like my difference was something valuable and something cool. And I think that for the first time in my life, I really felt confident because my looks were complimented. And, you know, I just didn't feel like that gawky girl with the scar on her arm and the long skinny neck. All of a sudden, that long skinny neck was like, wow, look at how how beautiful and long her neck is. You know, it's like, I didn't change. But the perception that the community I was in changed. And I'm very glad that I went to Europe because it did wonders for my confidence. It allowed me to make a living that I don't think I would have made had I stayed in the States. Are there things about those early years in India you miss or about the culture or family life that just these are not things that exist here? I, you know, I, I do miss my childhood in India because it was the last time that I felt like I really lived in the moment and that, you know, a bowl of rice and curry was just the utmost thing. And I do miss the immediacy of life in India. You know, my, my grandmother did not get 
a fridge until she was 30 and she kind of didn't know what to do with it except store ice water in it. (laughs) Every meal was cooked fresh. There was no such thing as the leftovers. You know, we we had eight to 10 mouths to feed and we had a two burner stove. And so a lot went on in that kitchen. And I kind of miss this ever evolving rolling meal. Just saying, okay, well, we've got this, we'll make that and we'll do this. You're always thinking about food in real time. So in your new show, Taste the Nation, you're in search of the meaning of American food, right? Yeah. I think American food, like its population, is an ever-evolving thing. And for the last, you know, three-some years, we've seen a lot of vilification of immigrants. And to me, that is deeply unfortunate for a plethora of reasons. But first and foremost, because it is really, to me, what makes America so interesting and, and so powerful as a culture. You know, the things that we think of as all American, like hot dogs, hamburgers, apple pie, are not at all American. And we're brought here, you know, in the case of hot dogs and hamburgers, by German immigrants and beer. I mean, what's more American than beer? You know, but so are tacos. And so, you know, so is pad thai. I, I just wanted to say, like, who gets to decide who gets to be American and who gets to decide what American food is. Because a lot of times you also see this new American cuisine moniker. And new American cuisine to me is just a pseudonym for established chefs making the French dominated cuisine they always have, but being able to add turmeric and sriracha and you know chipotle into sneak that into their meatloaf or whatever and suddenly it's new american cuisine but human beings have done that all of our history and i don't think it's a bad thing i just think we should be clear-eyed about it one of the shows you visited chinatown in san francisco yeah i live very close to chinatown in new york but i'd never been to chinatown in san francisco so that was a new experience for me And there are different layers of Chinatown. So there are still a lot of these lovely older people, but then there's the new guard. And they're, you know, they're Chinese Americans who have grown up here, eating peanut butter, going to baseball games, having all of the experiences that are quintessentially American. But, you know, um, those people are actually coming back to Chinatown because they grew up going there on Saturday with their families. You know, I remember being dragged to Jackson Heights. I mean, we lived in Jackson Heights, but then we moved to Manhattan. But I remember being dragged back on the weekends to buy all our groceries and stuff. And, and, you know, just have an, an experience with people speaking the same language. I mean, in India, that's not entirely true because we have a hundred languages. But there is a commonality. You know, in India, people will always say, I'm Bengali, I'm Punjabi, within the community. But outside the community, they'll say, I'm Indian. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, your circle gets wider as your need uh, demands. So, you know, if you, you are craving Indian culture, then you reach for any Indian you can find. <laughs> um, I didn't see this one segment, but I guess you wrote the Wiener Mobile in Milwaukee, which yes. makes me think you, you had this great quote, maybe about modeling. I'm not sure. You said you're doing something so vapid, you're not using your brain. And then you say, yeah, but you're so lucky to be doing what most people would kill to do. So just be thankful. So, I guess in everyone's career, you know, there are times, I've done it too, where you just go, 
really, I'm, you know, what am I doing? And then, and then other times you go, you know, you're so lucky to be like yeah. me. I've been so lucky to spend my life in food. You've been so lucky to do what you've done. But you always have those two things going on at the same time, right? Absolutely. Because by the way, you, you know, I, I would like to say, you know, I'm a serious food person and I'm a writer, but I'm also somebody who has to keep people from turning the channel. And I'm very conscious of that fact. What was absurd about that segment is that I'm in this Wienermobile rattling around like a pebble in a tin can. (laughs) But inside that Wienermobile, I am having the deepest, most fascinating conversation with a historian who gives you a roadmap to German history in Milwaukee. And I was like, you know, the, just the juxtaposition of these two things, am I gonna be able to use this material? But I was so consumed with talking to her that I didn't care. And then there's a point where we actually sing the Oscar Mayer song, which I remember because of the 70s and 80s commercials. Speaking of interesting people, Michael Twitty was on one of your shows, author of The Cooking Gene. Um, what, what do you make of Michael Twitty? I was introduced to Michael through his writing. I literally saw his book on the desk of an associate in my office, and I just picked it up out of curiosity and read a couple pages, and I was hooked. I mean, there are a lot of people who also deal with this, right? There's Tony Tipton Martin with the Jemima Code. He's not the only one. But it was the first time that somebody really took African-American food and culture and but mostly food and gave it a history that reached farther than just our shores of the Atlantic. And that I think was a gift. You know, it's it's not the same at all, but for instance, I grew up without a father. I never knew my biological father because my parents divorced so young. And it always left a void in me. There's always this insecurity of who am I? And grounding yourself in who you are, not only with your parents, not only with your great-grandparents, but in your culture and your history and your lineage and your geography, you know, that where, how that geography plays into who you are and what you eat and how you talk is, is really something that everybody should have. And I think Michael did that for, you know, for whoever is interested to read it. You speak five languages. Uh, you've done a bunch of TV shows, written cookbooks, written a memoir, been a model. Uh, this notion of being able to have it all, you have a daughter, and you once wrote, in 10 years, I'm not going to look back and say, look at all these beautiful projects I've done. I'm going to say, was I there for my daughter, Krishna? Can you have it all, or have you decided that that's just a, a silly notion? Uh, You can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. (laughs) I mean, I often don't have time for an adult personal life. You know, I have to be mindful and say, okay, when was the last time I just went to have a glass of wine with my friends or went to dinner, not for an event or for work or for a parent-teacher thing, but actually for something that was purely for pleasure. But what I can say is that I am with Krishna more than most full-time working women. And so I'm very lucky in that respect that I have the resources to make that possible. I think, you know, I became a mother quite late. I, you know, I had Krishna when I was 39 and 
if if I think if I had had a child earlier in my career, it wouldn't have been as easy. And so I think it's also you have to make time for what's important and you have to understand that you won't be able to have everything because of that. And I've just sort of made peace with that. Padma, it's been a pleasure. Uh, all the best, and congratulations on Taste the Nation as well. It was wonderful to talk to you again, Chris. That was Padma Lakshmi. Her new TV series on Hulu is called Taste the Nation. American cookery is being celebrated high and low from north to south, from low country to high country. But that wasn't always the case. Isadora Duncan once said, America knows nothing of food, love, or art. And Fran Leibovitz also added, if you're going to America, bring your own food. With all due respect to Ms. Leibovitz, if you come to America now, please bring your appetite instead. And by the way, we're not so bad at love and art either. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, garlic rosemary burgers with telegio sauce. Lynn, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You know, once in a while you come across a recipe in a cookbook that's so simple, you just have to rush home to make it. And that's true of a recipe from a guy called Ignacio Matos. His cookbook is called Estella. And he has a recipe for a sauce, a cheese sauce that he puts on a steak. It's heavy cream and telegio. That's it. Heavy cream and delicious. No bechamel, no flour, butter, etc. It was so simple and it was delicious. So we decided maybe we would take that concept and apply it to something else. That's right. It seems like the perfect combination with a burger. So that's how we're going to do it here. It's sort of like grown-up cheese whiz. That's a good way of saying it. Not, not very romantic, <laughs> but it's true. So Telegio is an Italian cheese. It's great for this because it has a ton of flavor, but it's a soft cheese, so it really does melt very well. So like you said, super simple. Uh, we heat up some cream. We add cubes of Telegio, take it off the heat, cover it, and just let it sit there, and the cheese melts from the residual heat of the pot. So that's it? It's a burger with a great cheese sauce? Actually, no. Ignacio bastes his steak with fish sauce when he makes it, and so we kind of like the idea of that for our burger. So what we did instead was use Worcestershire sauce, which has some similar flavor profiles to fish sauce in that it has a lot of salt, has that umami that you love. And we made a little bit of a basting sauce with that with garlic and rosemary. Some of that goes in with the burger. The rest gets kind of brushed on as we cook it. Uh, It's done in a cast iron skillet. Okay, so from here on in, it's just business as usual, cheap supermarket bun? No, actually, you want to use a sturdier bun here. Uh, Usually we like a potato roll with a burger, but in this case, we want a Kaiser roll or a brioche roll, something a little bit hearty. And assembly is really important here. You want to put the sauce on the bun rather than put it on the burger. If you put it on the burger, it just slides right off. So both sides of the bun get Mm. the sauce. You put the burger in the middle, and it's... Cheese Whiz for grown-ups. I have to say, this is the best burger I ever ate. It's delicious. So thanks to Ignacio Matos, we have the garlic rosemary burgers with telegio sauce. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for garlic rosemary burgers with telegio sauce at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Bianca Bosker teaches us about the history of wine reviews. We'll be right back.
I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your culinary questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ava from Falls Church, Virginia. Hi, Ava. How can we help you today? I basically had a question about cooking poultry. I really like to cook skin-on poultry, um, which my mom doesn't. A lot of the recipes, you know, when I'm going for, like, crispy skin. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, .us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Um, they say these a baking sheet. And so whenever I want to do that, my mom gets worried that it's going to splatter all over the oven. She wants me to use like a deeper pan or something with a lid. But then I don't do that because, you know, I'm worried that it won't get crispy. And then I make a huge mess in the oven and stuff splatters everywhere. This happened spatchcocking the turkey. This happened with making wings at the Super Bowl. So I just want to know, am I doing something wrong by using just a baking sheet at like high heat with oiled uh, meat? 
or could it be that the recipe isn't taking cleanup into account? Well, it's sort of a combination of all of the above. I mean, your instinct is right. You don't want high sides because you want crispy chicken. And I'm there with you. And also the skin will keep it more moist. It's rimmed sheet pans, right? Yeah, yeah, they're like rimmed cookie sheets. Maybe it's something to keep in mind to keep the chicken pieces more towards the center of the sheet pan, not touching because you need the air to circulate. And you could even put another pan underneath to catch the fat so it doesn't go into the oven. I don't know, Chris, you got any thoughts here? Oh, yeah, I totally disagree. Um, (laughs) It's my turn to disagree with you. I can't wait. First of all, it's a half-baking sheet, but the edge should be about an inch high, not like a quarter inch high, and that'll make a big difference. Secondly, every Sunday, I put a rack on one of those half-baking sheets. I spatchcock a chicken to take the backbone out and flatten it. I put this spice rub I make on it and salt and cook it at 375 for... 50 minutes or whatever the time is. And it comes out great, evenly cooked, and there's no splattering. So spatchcocking and using a rim pan with an inch rim should solve that problem. A turkey, forget it. The other thing you might think about is what's in the pan. I was just talking to Vivian Howard, actually, from North Carolina. She does something interesting. She puts rice and water on the half-baking sheet and then puts the chicken on a rack over it. So as the rice cooks, it absorbs the liquid fat from the chicken, which makes fabulous rice. That would solve the problem of flare-ups, smoke, and also give you some fabulous roasted vegetables or rice or whatever you want. So, you know, two solutions. Spatchcock, make sure you have a rim that's an inch high, and then put something underneath the rack. Okay, yeah, because I think my cookie sheet's only about maybe half an inch. Yeah, that's the problem. Now, if you put stuff underneath it, a cooling rack's not going to be high enough. You probably would have to use more of a roasting rack or a cooling rack that sits up high above the baking sheet. So it's not just that it's spilling over. Sometimes it's just like splattering from the sheet. So in that case, right. you know, the vegetables underneath might not work as well, but just a higher rim is basically best. Well, use a higher rim and put a little water on the bottom. I mean, not too much because you don't want a really humid environment, but... Yeah, I think that's the easiest solution. Spatchcock, rack, sheet, and a little bit of water. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. All right. Have a good day. This is Milk Street Radio. If you find yourself stumped in the kitchen, please give us a ring. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Marika Davis. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Gilbert, Arizona. How can we help you today? My mom and I got a Cuisinart bread maker in March, and we've been testing it out using the recipes that came with the machine. So far, the bread we made has been good. Some of the recipes seem to uh, require more liquid than it calls for, but I've noticed that the bread dries out very fast, despite our efforts to cover it in foil plastic and uh, store it in Tupperware. I've been reading that adding potato flour to a bread recipe will keep it softer longer, but how much do I add per cup of flour? When you say it's not soft like regular store-bought bread, what do you want it to be like? It's just a bit coarser, and of course it dries out much faster. And it's a regular white flour dough that you're making? It depends. And you're using it for sandwiches? Sandwiches, French toast, depends on our purposes. 
Can I ask a question? Why are you using a bread machine? Um, my mom is getting on. She can't knead for long periods of time, right. so the bread machine needs for us. I do have a couple suggestions. I found that if you use the bread machine to knead the dough, but then took it out of the machine and shaped it and let it rise and then baked it off in an oven, I got a much better result. The crust was much better. So that would be one thing you could try. Second is, I think it's about a tablespoon of starch to a cup of flour. So if you wanted to try that potato starch trick, you could do that. The other is, I think it's about how the dough, when it's cooked, gelatinizes so it holds in moisture. So I wonder if in an oven, it might do a better job of that than it would because the nature of the bread machine in terms of how it bakes is quite different. So yeah. that's why I would try the, use it as a kneader, kneading machine, but then bake it off in an oven. You might get better results. I know you get a better crust, but you might get a, you know, a softer bread that doesn't get hard as quickly. You could also, but see, here's the thing. This is not using the bread machine. You could make the no-knead bread, which is so simple. You know, you mm. combine all the ingredients and then you let it ferment overnight. And then, you know, basically you throw it in. But it, that has a serious crust. I like a crust. And it sounds like you prefer more of the sandwich bread. It depends. I love big, crusty bread when it comes to soup. But when it comes to sandwiches, it's really hard to cut and to right. chew. So soft crust for sandwiches and uh, big crust for soup. There's nothing worse than two huge slices of crusty European rustic bread where the filling gets lost. Mm. So I, I like the Dagwood, you know, the soft, <laughs> the soft <laughs> white bread with tons of filling. That's my kind of sandwich. But you're right, when it comes to soup or stew, you really want the European style. So Yeah. Well, anyway, give that a shot. Knead in the machine, bake off in the oven, and see what happens. Yeah, okay, that well, sounds like a plan. You. Our pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thanks for calling. Bye. Thank you. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Joni Moore from Florida, and here's my tip. I never have to use the entire can of tomato paste, so whenever I'm using a can and open it up, I take what's left by tablespoons, freeze it on a cookie sheet in the freezer, and then I pop it into Ziplocs and keep those in the freezer for when I need them in the future. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's journalist Bianca Bosker. Bianca, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? What's uh, on your mind this week? Wine reviews. I want to talk about the evolution of wine reviews. Are you a wine review reader? Are you familiar with the canon at all? Uh, I'm a little familiar, uh, and I've, I've looked at them and decided that all reviews are within about five percentage points. So I, I basically <laughs> stopped looking at them. Um, but I, you know a lot more than I do since you have been in that business. Well, what I found really surprising was that although we've been drinking and making wine for something like 9,000 years, we've really only started talking about wine pretty recently. You know, of course, we've written about wine, how to make it, all of that. But this whole idea of talking about the singed juniper and warm ganache and sweet tobacco aromas, that's actually pretty new. 
So if you go back to the ancient Greeks and Romans who were um, some of the early enophiles writing about wine, what I do love actually is that these early reviews were in fact, in some ways more utilitarian than our current wine reviews, because they weren't just about flavor, but about how the wines made you feel. Some of these early reviews would talk about, for example, a wine that makes you a little less drunk, um, another one that gives you a really bad hangover. Um, Pliny the Elder talked about the wines from Pompeii as being productive of headache, which often lasts so long as the sixth hour of the next day. Um, and also another wine that was the favorite of emperors that um, apparently he says that these emperors love it because they have learned, and I quote, from actual experience that there is no danger of indigestion and flatulence resulting from the use of this liquor. <laughs> but it wasn't until really in the 18th and 19th centuries that people started to wax poetic about wines. And what happened was wine drinking went from being sort of, you know, wine was the thing that you drank because water had bacteria and might kill you, to being something much more refined. And of course, once it became more refined, people wanted to talk about how much they did it. People talked about wines as though they were gossiping about their friends. Wines could be very manly, they could be noble, um, they could be elegant, naive, harmonious, presumptuous, mellow, they could have great distinction and breed. But there were two big changes to wine reviewing that took place in the 70s. Are you ready? And, and this probably came from American writers, I would assume? You are right. Yes, it came on both course. counts from Americans, right. yes. So one of them had to do with the rise of Robert Parker. Robert Parker, who's been incredibly influential for pioneering this 100-point system that I think some people argue really lose a lot of the nuance in tasting. The second big thing that happened was this attempt by scientists at the University of California, Davis, to move away from this sort of frivolous language, as they saw it, of wines being elegant or harmonious, and talk about wine using these objective descriptors. Things like orange peel, right? Lemon, apple. Um, this was pioneered by a woman named Anne Noble, who came up with the wine aroma wheel. And she, when she gave people these wine descriptors, really reference things that were no more exotic than what you might find at the supermarket. Again, these were things that any person could smell and reference and get to know. I mean, Fruit Loops was on her list. Well, can I just stop you for a second? I mean, wine is infinitely complex and changing, right? So every year the vintage is different than the prior year. And an effort to make sense of it all is really impossible for the average consumer. So here we have this incredibly complex way of discussing a product that is so complicated and there's so many choices. I mean, my question is, what good does it really do? I think that's a great question. I mean, I would argue that it's not impossible to kind of wrap your mind around wine. Anyone can do it. But I, I do think that oftentimes the language around wine, the wine industry does make it feel like you have to trust these experts to tell you what to think. And, you know, when you think about how reviewers score their wines, they might sit down and taste 20 to 100 wines in a sitting. It's very different from the way you and I drink our wines. Well, if I may make a suggestion, you know, wine is like cooking, right? I mean, 
you want to be a good cook, maybe you start with a dozen recipes and get to know them well, right? And then you slowly expand your repertoire. You don't start with a thousand recipes or five thousand. Same with wine. I mean, right? You take a dozen bottles of wine, you get to know them well, and maybe you slowly branch out from there. But I think the problem is it's an infinite number of choices. I mean, most French people I know, they just drink what they like. They, they don't view it as an art. They view it as a necessity, right? I mean, really, that's the difference. Right. Well, I, I think that certainly wine reviews can have their place. But I do also think that if we acknowledge that they're subjective, there's something really empowering about that. Part of the limitations of wine reviews is they do tend to focus on sort of the big hits. And what's so exciting about this moment that we're in is that there's this explosion of wines coming from outside the classic regions, from Slovenia, from Croatia, from Georgia, from Texas is even making wine. I mean, I'm not necessarily standing behind the quality of all of it, but it's harder to find wine reviewers that are combing the sort of B-sides, if you will. Bianca Bosker, you can go with lemon peel uh, and jammy and leather. Uh, I'll take this wine won't give you indigestion. (laughs) That's the one I'm going to buy. Bianca, thank thank you. you. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take an online cooking class for free, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff, And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.